they're like, oh, it's currant jelly sputum. But like, have you ever seen currant jelly? Like, I'm not from England. I don't know what that means. So like, the analogy is completely lost. I'm like, why don't you just tell it was mucusy? That's much easier to tell me than just say that it's you know currant jelly. Welcome to Go Live, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Clinical Informatics Fellows, where we discuss the intersection between healthcare and technology and bring you entertaining interviews from the experts in our field. I'm Chase Parsons, a clinical informatics fellow at Boston Children's Hospital, and today we're bringing you updates on one of the biggest EHR vendors and their play in the app development space, and we'll be discussing the Clinical Informatics Fellowship and what it means in the healthcare field. Uh, We're going to feature an interview with Dr. Bruce Levy, who's been uh, leading the Clinical Informatics Fellowship Initiative, and I'm joined today by Chansey Christensen, first-year fellow over at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, Jake Lancaster. Um, He's down at Vanderbilt, and we have Ben Orwell as well over at OHSU. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, guys. Great to be here. Glad to be here. Ben, where where are you right now? Uh, Right now, I'm sitting on the second floor of Epic's headquarters in Verona. Uh, I think that's the major EHR player that you were talking about. Um, I'm here for some physician builder training to try to kind of kick off uh, my development uh, components to, to my fellowship and try to give myself a little bit more of a um, of a way to get my hands down and dirty in the EHR. Have you seen the building that was looks like the Harry Potter castle? I I saw it like over a ridge, um, just the, <laughs> just like the parapets. I saw the the you know the the turret basically, but that's all I've seen of it so far. I I decided I would try to walk to Epic this morning, um, and it was actually 3.8 miles. um, So that ended up being a little too far. And I did end up grabbing the bus, which was full of 20 something developers um, that worked at Epic. So there, there's some of it, but it definitely wasn't one of those black tinted limo vans. It was a Madison, you know, Dade County transit bus. They're they're a little less kind of hoity toity about their, about their services. I like that their ser- their main server warehouse is in a farm because it's a ser- server farm. So it's shaped in a huge barn-shaped building. <laughs> it's you know it's good to it's good to kind of apply a little bit of literality to these things. <laughs> but I will say the one thing that that they do have that I that I haven't tried yet, uh, but will try is boxed water. They say water is better from a box. That's what the I, box says. Yes. Yeah. I have yet to <laughs> confirm that. I, I can confirm that the box water is good, but uh, I really relied on the on the caffeinated water to get me through my training sessions there. Um, also, uh, Judy Faulkner does not allow um, Coke products or, or Pepsi products or any sort of soft drinks. It seems on on her premises um, after many days of searching. Really, but but what is? I've never seen caffeinated water before. So is, it really is it just carbonated? Like, it, uh, it's not carbonated, no, but it, it just tastes like bitter water, um, which was perfect for me. <laughs> There's Probably. a place where all the writers work, and it's supposed to look like Cambridge. And then there's supposedly one that looks like Alice in Wonderland, but I have no idea what's over there. 
there were two people in my class today that were from real Cambridge. And I thought to myself, don't you guys have some kind of national health system that has its own EHR? Like, what are you doing here? But I haven't had a chance to ask them about that either. Is there a national health system epic? Because that would be amazing. I don't I actually think so. don't think they have a national uh, health EHR. Uh, and because I remember hearing something about Bob Walker from UCSF um, being involved and in, in trying to help with that, uh, with their plan to do that. Um, but don't quote me on that. All right. So speaking of Epic, uh, I was going to discuss with you guys the uh, Epic App Orchard. Uh, it was kind of in the news uh, more recently in the past month. Um, this is an article from Xconomy.com, uh, and they're discussing the uh, apparently uh, Epic Systems. They are announcing a program called App Orchard, which is supposed to make it simpler for developers to connect to customers. Um, and uh, their VP said, uh, Sumit Rana, he said that uh, it basically it consists of um, application programming interfaces or APIs, which are um, bridges then between the Epic tools and the other software products. And it creates uh, initially kind of a test environment, is my understanding, uh, where uh, developers can use the Epic product and the um, interaction with the product in kind of a fake environment because it's you know normally difficult for uh, these developers to use real hospital health records uh, you know to interact with and to do their testing on. So um, it starts out with this um, fake environment and then they can move over to an app store where um, you know healthcare systems can share their applications. Uh, you know, across uh, health systems, you know, to hopefully improve patient care. Uh, what do you guys think about this? Uh, I think this is a really good idea. I think that it opens it up in a way similar to the iPhone App Store and the Android Google Play. I think that um, it's. I think for a long time the EHRs have been very proprietary, and I know Epic itself was very closed off and resistant to open up their data and to open up their system to anything. But I think. It will improve the functionality of Epic, and it will really help cater to a lot of what individual end users needs. I agree. Um, from what I've heard, a lot of people talk about um, the App Orchard and their kind of view of where the EHR is going to go in the future, and they really see it. Um, you know, the Epics and the Cerners of the world really taking on less of a role in the apps, really assuming a lot of the, the, the focus and being the key drivers of, of what's going on, I guess, um, on a day-to-day clinical operations basis. Um, so that sounds promising and it does sound, it'll be great to get some third-party developers, uh, into uh, working on these apps. I know a lot of places that used to have homegrown systems and that have switched to vendors, uh, like Vanderbilt are, planning on turning some of their homegrown products into uh, into these apps so that they can continue to use them going forward. Yeah, what's an example of, of an app that, that you guys would, you know, that would be on the App Store? I know that we have, uh, you know, a growth chart that was made for families to easy, more easily understand, you know, their child's growth curve, uh, you know, in kind of a family-friendly manner over at Children's. I mean, then this is something that we've shared with uh, health systems like Intermountain Health, and they've implemented it into, you know, their version of, of Cerner. And I think uh, uh, Duke has actually implemented it into uh, Epic as well. And that's shared on the Smart and Fire, uh, you know, app marketplace. Um, but what are some 
epic apps that you guys would like to see or that would be something okay. for the future? Um, I think an anti-biogram that you could call up like bugs and drugs would be really easy. That'd be a really easy win. And then what I really like to see is we use Tiger Text as our secured text messaging. So if you had that somehow what you texted also could generate a note in Epic, I think that'd be really beneficial. I th- this is Ben. I think my um, my biggest uncertainty or concern or whatever you want to call it with this type of uh, – marketplace is that it's a little bit unclear to me exactly how these apps are going to be allowed to integrate into the workspace and the workflow of the EHR. Are they just going to overlay on top? Are they going to be like activities or, um, or navigators that you're normally used to seeing sort of on the left side of your screen if you're using Epic? Um, and how is the data going to flow back and forth between them and the and the underlying clinical database? Because um, you know there are, I think those types of questions really um, will dictate to some extent the types of use cases that we can come up with. And even though Epic has given some details uh, in some of their press releases. I think that it that so far everything that I've seen has been a little bit light on either real specifications or demonstration apps. You know, one of the big things that a lot of times you want to see out of these things is like, look, we have these five killer apps that we've come up with or that some developer that we've partnered with has come up with that is going to be the launching pad that we're going to use to make this thing successful. And I haven't seen that yet. One of the issues is, you know, the ability to write, uh, you know, within the EHR, like being able to read the information and, and use that information is, is one thing, but the real utility or usefulness, uh, from a lot of these applications is to be able to, you know, write data directly to the EHR. And I haven't seen a lot of that. Uh, the only example I've seen of that so far in both Epic and Cerner is, is, uh, you know, with the growth charts, being able to put that parent's age, you know, into uh, the database. Another question I have is on cost of these applications. Um, I, I read one article that said uh, that a lot of these will be purchased and a certain portion I would imagine would go to Epic and a certain portion would go to the developers of the app. Um, I have, you know, I don't know how much money we're talking per application. Uh, will there be some applications that are free? I mean, uh, that is uh, still a little unclear. And then obviously it's not going to be just one clinician that determines, hey, I want this cool app for my personal EHR use. It's going to be an organizational decision. And so it's going to be installing each application will be almost like a, you know, another mini EHR install in and of itself. That does raise the further question of how do you do it with upgrades too? Because if you have a lot of customization in Epic or if you have a whole bunch of system-wide instituted third-party apps, are they all going to get wiped out in the update? Or are they all going to have to be updated as well? Or, I mean, uh, continuing the change across the whole organization would be hard. Yeah, so the one article I've read said that Epic would send out update releases to each of these applications and give their specifications for how they could make sure that they were up-to-date. Uh, now, if an application like fails to remain up-to-date, and an institution is relying on that app for a clinical operation, I could see how that could have huge downstream consequences. 
I agree, and but I also think that uh, you know, if there were a large vendor that were to do something like this, Epic seems like it's moving in uh, the right direction the quickest. You know, as far as um, kind of decreasing the amount of customization that. Uh, that its uh, hospitals are getting when they when they implement a version of Epic, um, you know, it's a lot of um, some of the other vendors. You're know, really about the customization and you know what's best for your organization, as opposed to Epic, which kind of could be compared to uh, you know the Apple, or, uh, you know, of the of the vendor world. You know, where it's kind of like, well, here's our product, and you know, kind of be happy with that. But we think it's the best, um, you know, as opposed to the Microsoft or you know Unix system where there's you know, it focuses on the customization. Well, and I think that these, um, another big concern that, that people are hinting at and, um, and that is obviously of huge concern in healthcare is just security. And so I wonder whether, um, you know, if people are really thinking that some of these uh, apps are going to work in a cross-platform manner, that is that, you know, you could use it at Boston Children's, and you could use it at Vanderbilt, and you could use it at OHSU, um, and you could use it at Geisinger. Uh, who is reviewing the security components of each of these applications? Is there? Are we all going to have to have business associates agreements with every software developer in order to make sure that you know them being able to see patient data or? Or um, that sort of thing is covered under HIPAA, or, or perhaps are we going to have to have software analysts at each one of these sites kind of go through with a fine-tooth comb the code on each one of these things? Because I think that's going to be prohibitive if that ends up being the case. I, I do think that will be the case. I think for each new application that you want to install, it's going to be like, um, it's, or each new app that, that, that you're going to install, it's going to be similar to installing another vendor um, outside of the EHR that you'd go through the same processes of, main, of making sure that that application was fit your institution's needs as far as security and privacy goes, uh, is my understanding uh, based on a couple of the articles I read. Um, one of the other concerns I saw hinted at was um, so suppose you're an application developer and Epic decides to include your application in its new release, essentially putting you out of the market. Apple has done this with a few products uh, in the past, uh, you know, including Google Maps, you know, Apple Maps, maybe not that successful, but, you know, it, it kind of has done similar things where somebody will come out with a really great app and then Apple will uh, just included in its next release of its current software. Uh, there's some concern that Epic might do the same. I'm looking forward to seeing their first, their first half a dozen apps. You know, that's going to be, I think, uh, a big piece of whether or not people are going to get excited and move forward with doing what it takes to actually put these things into, into place in their systems. Guys, I just had a great... I just had a great app idea. It's Shazam for heart sounds. What do you think? I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I like it. That's good. You could just put your, your microphone up to the patient's chest. Exactly. It's a great discussion on the Epic App Store. And, you know, again, we'll have to look kind of to the future to see what happens, what that first uh, set of apps looks like in the App Store. They said they have over a thousand partners. So we'll see. 
Now we're going to switch over to our interview with Dr. Bruce Levy. Today I'm with uh, Dr. Bruce Levy, who graduated from the New York Medical College and did his residency in pathology at UMass Medical Center. He continued his education by completing a fellowship in forensics at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office and a fellowship in informatics at MGH. He later became the medical examiner for New York City and the chief medical examiner for Tennessee. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Levy. Great to be here, Chase. So, uh, you know, you have kind of a you have a really interesting you know path to where you are now. You know, you were the forensics examiner for the for New York City and for Tennessee, um, and now you're uh, an associate uh, CIO at Geisinger and leading their uh, clinical informatics program there. Uh, how did you get to where you are? How did how did you kind of combine this pathology and and uh, informatics to to be a career? Well, for me, it was really much a very natural progression. Pathology has been involved with informatics for many decades now, primarily because of all of the laboratory data that we generate and all of the automated instrumentation that we have to run. When I entered forensics, forensics really had no um, informatics, no IT infrastructure at all. We were still working in a paper-based world, and I just thought that was a little bit ridiculous in the, even in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So I began working on creating information systems and forensics, spent a good amount of time doing that. So I was able to blend both pathology or forensic pathology and informatics together. And over the years, I just kind of found my interests more lied with informatics than with uh, the day-to-day practice of forensic pathology. Being the medical examiner in New York City or Tennessee, which was more interesting? This is actually a question that the fellow, other fellows had on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what I would say is that um, both jobs were interesting in very, very different ways. Um, my position in New York City, I was one of 30-some-odd medical examiners working for the city of New York. Uh, My first job out of fellowship training, and I learned a tremendous amount about the practice of forensic pathology and began to play around with informatics and using IT in the practice of forensic pathology. When I went to Tennessee, I was now running an office, so I was much more involved with the management and the administration of the office in addition to the practice of medicine. And that was where I really began to be able to um, push the boundaries of what could be done in informatics within forensics. And how did you change this practice of clinical informatics from the practice to teaching clinical informatics and developing a clinical informatics fellowship? Sure. Well, education has also always been something very important to me. Um, We like to joke in our family that there's a teaching gene. My mother was a public school teacher for New York City for 40 years. Um, Her father was a teacher. So it kind of ran in our family. Uh, I was very involved with setting up forensic pathology fellowships. uh, And in fact, though it's not very well known, pathology actually was the first group to attempt 
to get the ACGME and the you know National Board of Medical Specialties to um, try and create clinical informatics as a subspecialty uh, back in the early 1990s. And at that point, there just wasn't enough critical mass to get that accomplished. So it was really a very natural progression for me as AMIA stepped in and, and we finally in the early 2000s had the, ma- the critical mass necessary to push clinical informatics into graduate medical education. So how was the fellowship created? You guys, um, you and Bill Hirsch, I'm assuming, maybe met with AMIA and then um, move forward with that. How did, how did that come about? Well, AMIA actually, um, on its own, at that time, I really wasn't very involved with AMIA at all. But they had actually gotten a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to actually pursue that activity to create a core content and then to approach um, the NBMS and get one of the member boards to support the creation of board certification in, in informatics. We're really looking at the first full class, I would say, graduating this year. And what do you see the fellows doing after graduation? What's What are the job opportunities for a fellow that's completed an academic uh, fellowship in clinical informatics? I think there are quite a few opportunities, and I think it's really up to the fellows to decide what sort of career they are looking for. I think if these fel- the fellows who are graduating or any of the fellows are interested in staying in a hospital, practicing medicine and practicing clinical informatics, I would envision that most of them would end up in a position where they'd be doing some sort of, of combined practice of you know clinical medicine and informatics and in some proportion, you know, probably varies from place to place. Some might be more interested in an academic medical center and more involved with primary informatics research in an academic setting. But I also think there's a large area of opportunity for fellows who may be more entrepreneurial uh, in their outlook to really go and maybe even not practice medicine or limit their practice of medicine and work with any variety of companies, either startups or established companies, all of which are looking for physicians trained in informatics. And I know that CMIO, or Chief Medical Informatics Officer, is a position that many think that one could go to after uh, completing a fellowship in clinical informatics. How is that integrated into a health system, and is there a return on investment for a CMIO? Well, I mean, I think... um, the position of CMIO at this point in time is fairly well established, I think, in, in hospitals of pretty much any size across the United States. I think the definition of what that role specifically is is still in flux, depending on where you're located. I think there are different ideas on what a CMIO should be responsible for. You know, in some places, it may be more focused on implementation and optimization of systems. In other places, like Geisinger, we're a lot more interested in this point in analytics and using the data that we've been collecting 
um, and not as much focused on the actual implementation of the systems, which, for example, here we've had for many, many years. The other thing I was going to say is, um, you know, with the fellowship, some of the early thinking was we were training the next generation of CMIOs in the fellowship, and that's only partially true. I think we're training a whole generation of physician leaders who are going to need informatics to be leaders within medicine. But just like I wouldn't expect someone coming out of residency or fellowship and becoming a chair of a department, I don't expect any fellow graduating from a CI fellowship to immediately step into a CMIO role. I think just like in other areas of medicine, I think you need time where you actually really learn through practical experience more about what this role is about before you would step up into that leadership level. And where do you see the fellowships going in the next five years? And do you see the informatics curriculum being spread to other parts of medical education? You know, I think you, you really addressed two things in your question. One is the fellowships themselves, and then the other is the issue of just education and clinical informatics in healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. And I think both of these areas are going to evolve very rapidly over the next five or so years. If I were to say what I would like to think um, will happen with these fellowships is the fellowships evolving more into what I like to call blended fellowships, where you're not just spending two years focused really on clinical informatics. And, and maybe, yes, you're spending a little bit of your time practicing medicine within the same time frame or structure as the fellowship. But I really think the future is going to be combined training in a clinical area of medicine and clinical informatics at the same time. I think there's a real benefit in having both of those things happen simultaneously. So what are you doing? What's going on at Geisinger? I mean, I uh, left Geisinger this past last summer, and I know I feel like there's a lot uh, of new stuff being at Geisinger. You guys have a lot of data, um, you know, with your cohort of patients, um, you know, of in central Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the innovation happening at Geisinger? Sure. Well, we miss you here in central Pennsylvania, though um, I can certainly understand the attraction of living in a great city like Boston. Um, You know, Geisinger is really continuing to push boundaries when it comes to how do we collect data, how do we use data, um, you know, how do we leverage data to get that final V everyone talks about in big data, which is value. How do we get maximal value out of our data? And we're doing lots and lots of of different projects in that area, building a a unified data architecture structure uh, that allows us to really leverage our use of the data for clinical care, for research, and for education. To me, it is critically necessary. And here at Geisinger, we recently... um, merged with a medical school. So what used to be the Commonwealth Medical College up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, is now Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. And 
we are planning to implement informatics education into undergraduate as well as graduate medical education. My belief really is that we sometimes get stuck in words. And obviously, because of the ACGME and the MBMS, you know, they've kind of defined clinical informatics as a subspecialty of medicine. And I would argue that clinical informatics really is not a subspecialty of medicine. It is, in fact, part of the practice of medicine in the 21st century. And therefore, the education of future physicians and nurses and other healthcare providers needs informatics. And when I mean informatics, yes, it's important to teach med students and nursing students, pharmacy students, et cetera, how to use an EHR. But really, we need to teach them those portions of informatics that underlie this. Why do we have an EHR? What is the value of this? How can we extract data from the medical record, from you know, from the literature, use that, turn it around back to the patient and provide the best, most efficient care that we can provide. And I think that really needs to be the emphasis, not just, you know, the quickest, easiest way to get data into the system, but why are we doing this and what value are we getting out of it? And how can every physician leverage these tools that are more and more becoming available to the individual users to extract the data that they need quickly and easily when they need it. And then how do you see the medical student, uh, you know, caring about learning about this? You know, they're studying for boards. Do we, does this have to be implemented into one of the, the USMLE exams? I, I believe within the next few years, we will begin to see informatics questions trickling down. Um, they're beginning to appear in some of the um, board certification exams uh, and some of the specialties of medicine. I believe that's going to trickle all the way down into, you know, the board exams that all the medical students take. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time. And it is. It's unfortunate. I mean, I hear that at, at various levels. There's so much knowledge to learn. Everyone wants to focus on what they need to know to pass the exam. But there is a great argument to be made that if we can provide an education that's going to make you a better physician and more efficient as a physician, um, there's value in that, whether or not there's a question on the exam about it. And I don't think that's a hard uh, thing to sell, especially to the generation of, of, you know, of young adults who are now training in medicine. Yeah, I agree. And I think that they find it you know, rel very relevant uh, you know, to them, especially as practicing and 2E practicing clinicians. Thank you so much, Dr. Levy, for speaking with me today. And I, I do have one more question. We've been asking all of our, all everyone that we're interviewing. And, um, you know, what is a pro tip that you can share with the future informaticist? It doesn't have to be necessarily medical or informatics related, but what's something that like either an app or, uh, you know, a process or a little lesson you've learned that you can share with, uh, you know, the future informaticist? 
I would say probably um, rather than focus on any one piece of technology, because there are just so many cool pieces of technology out there today, is the realization that there are many, many ways to solve a problem that you may be looking to solve. And there are many, many different solutions to help you solve that problem. And I think the important thing to remember is that you know, you could search forever looking for that perfect app. And, but a lot of people will tell you that, you know, perfection is, is the enemy of progress. So start with something that looks good. See how far you can take it. Um, and then if you need to make a change, make a change. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to speak with me. Um, Dr. Levy is the Associate Chief Medical Informatics Officer and the Director of the Clinical Informatics Fellowship at uh, Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you, Chase. So, I mean, moving from the the Fellowship Director uh, view of the Clinical Informatics Fellowship, you know, I just wanted to ask you guys – like what's what's your what are your fellowships like? I mean, uh, you know, my fellowship, for instance, over at Children's, we uh, there's a master's program involved with the uh, med school here, and uh, you know, it's kind of that's like the more biomedical informatics uh, part of the fellowship, and then I have rotations where uh, you know I'm doing maybe you know working with the inpatient team or working with our ambulatory team on. Uh, you know, different deployments or maybe the, our data warehouse team uh, spending time with them for a month and kind of uh, learning some more of the intricacies of our various uh, departments within the informatics and, uh, you know, doing some longitudinal work as well as kind of a deeper dive um, and, you know, doing some applying some of the stuff that I'm learning within the master's program uh, to do some research uh, as well. Uh, do you guys have master's programs as part of your fellowship? Uh, so yes, we have a master's program, it, and it's it's not on the biomedical side of informatics. It's actually a, a new master's program that we started this year called Masters of Applied Clinical Informatics, and there's about five of us in there, mostly MDs. Um, but my program is pretty similar to yours. It's the first year for the program, so uh, like a lot of us, we're still kind of figuring out the nuts and bolts of everything. Uh, but uh, my it mainly consists of rotations through the health IT department. Uh, so a, a couple of examples of rotations I've done were with the uh, uh, IT security team, with the product development team, product management team. This month I'm with the data warehouse team. Um, I've also been able to do some external rotations with the Department of Health Informatics on an opioid overdose project um, that I'm hoping to make into more of a longitudinal project. Um, but I would say that is kind of the background of, of our fellowship is the core master's program for the, the content. And then we have some longitudinal projects that you'll be a part of. Uh, oh, and I, I forgot to mention we're implementing EPIC in November. And so a large part of my fellowship is helping with that, serving on various working groups and, uh, and such. So do you guys think that the master's program along with the fellowship do you feel like that's too much or do you think that's okay? Or how do you feel about basically being in grad school and also working full time? I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, when, and it, 
some of our master's program is more of the clinical informatics side and, and, you know, it gives you overviews of, you know, databases and, and, you know, overviews of, um, you know, HIPAA and, and some of the policy, some of the business aspect, but then, uh, some of the biomedical stuff is like learning our programming and data analytics. Uh, and initially I was a little, uh, you know, I, I have never programmed before, and so I was a little uh, overwhelmed. Uh, but I think it's it's becoming helpful, uh, you know, in just like being able to, you know, take your own data set now and and kind of you know analyze that. Um, and, and I think that's an important part of you know clinical informatics. I don't know if if you know I will be you know a big data analyst uh, you know at the end of this, but I think that it's important to to get. Uh, a good overview, although it does make things, you know, other projects uh, difficult to catch up on because I am spending a lot of time doing some of the classwork. Well, I can speak a little bit from the OHSU perspective in the sense that we have, <clears throat> we also have a master's program, um, and I, it would, I don't know what the actual prevalence of master's programs is amongst all of the clinical informatics programs. Ours is not actually required. But it's um, but it's an option for the fellows. We have a required graduate certificate that ends up being about half as many classes as the um, as the biomedical informatics masters. For me, I think that the master's program has been um, a little bit too good of an opportunity to turn down, considering that it's kind of offered as a as a free add-on, you might say, to my fellowship. Um, but I do agree with you in the sense that sometimes the master's work tends to impinge on the other projects that um, that I have been working on, and I guess vice versa. Uh, one thing that I'm hoping is that as I get into the second year of the master's program, when things start to get more into like the the thesis or capstone type projects, that those can be well integrated with other long, longitudinal projects that I might also be working with um, as part of my fellowship. So and we'll do, see how that ends up working out. And do you guys have rotations um, as well, you know, or is it more of just kind of a free form with the master's program? So um, we have rotations, and, and uh, is actually, it like a is it like a YouTube rotation one month, and more of like a Vimeo, uh, you know, <laughs> the next month? Or? I think it's actually required by ACGME that you have a rotation structure um, in order to be an accredited ACGME fellowship. So my understanding is that all clinical informatics fellowships, to some extent, have a rotation structure. And we do similar types of things to the guy, things that you guys have been mentioning, which is like we rotate through the veterans hospitals informatics system. We rotate through our reporting group. We rotate through our sort of um, information technology group at OHSU. We have um, optional research blocks. We have a couple of elective rotations that we can choose um, a few different things to, to potentially pursue. I don't know about you guys, but one of my biggest struggles with this whole thing has just been that the length of these rotations actually hardly gets you a chance to really sink your teeth into anything. And I find myself sort of stringing along three or four projects from the past couple of rotations that 
I'm sort of struggling to try to complete them all as I move into future rotations. So are all your guys' rotations like a month? Are they similar to how it was in med school? Is like one to two months? Mine are two months. Mine are Mine generally are one, month. one month. Yeah. Okay. So ours are totally different. So we do have rotations, but we have much more in depth. So like last semester we had two main rotations, then we do them for six months. We had PATH. And then the installation of Epic. And then we also have class both being exposed to the laboratory information side of it. So this this month or this six months we're in the insurance block is a big one. And then we're also doing so and then we're gonna do genomics is one big one as well. And then we're also do so this this six month is data science and insurance. And so we do multiple projects sort of over the six months over that, as well as we have our weekly classes. So in the beginning, we met with the quality improvement team a couple of times, and then we met with the security team a couple of times, and we have an organizational development class as well. And then we also have the OHSU certificate, and then we, we don't get a master's, but we end up t- we're taking other outside courses as well, so like biostatistics and our programming and so on. So it's sort of ours is longer for the rotations. So that's what I was wondering. It's, it's surprising you guys have it, because I, I sometimes feel like informatics projects, it takes you at least at least a month to just get your footing in the place. I mean, I know with the insurance, it was definitely at least a month to, to learn all about it and about coding and billing and so on. So it's ours. Are, yeah. It's, it's an, it's a different switch from an, as it was in med school. Right. And I, I agree with Ben on the, you know, the difficulty maintaining the longitudinal pro, uh, projects, you know, maybe not every rotation do I, you know, continue with a project or, you know, but I do now have, you know, some, you know, a good set of longitudinal projects that I'm still working on that are left over from, you know, previous rotations. I don't yeah. know if informatics projects ever, ever actually end. No, no, no. no. The, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's against the definition of project. <laughs> <laughs> I think that gives a good overview of the kind of the diversity that we have in our various fellowships. And I hope that we're kind of able to communicate this to the, you know, to a, uh, everyone that's listening. Uh, and I want to thank you guys, Ben, Chansey, and Jake for joining me today. And if we could just finish up with some some quick pro tips. Last episode, we did some podcasts, but I just started listening to S-Town, and it's uh, you know from This American Life, the, this American Life team, and uh, kind of the third season of Serial. Um, and it, it's pretty good. It has some twists, and I would highly recommend it. That's S-Town. So I like this one called this podcast called Review the Future. I think the two guys on it are pretty smart, and they 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 apply a pretty grounded sense of sort of where we are, and just given the technology where we're going. So they have some really interesting topics about like automation and whether what's going to happen with the job market and automate um, robots in legal medicine. And they just came out with one on killer robots. So I think that it's pretty nerdy and funny at the same time. Well, if we're talking about podcasts. Um... I uh, I really like a podcast called Planet Money, and um, it's a it's another podcast out of NPR. But I I, I guess over the last few years, I've really um, at times been tempted to view everything through an economics lens, and um, and I think that this podcast really does a, a good job of taking. Um, interesting topics from around the world and presenting them in short, uh, digestible formats, but really looking at the uh, economic side of it and how that drives people's behaviors and, and, um, and world events.
Yeah, I, I also really enjoy Planet Money, and I think that's one of the podcasts that you'll hear someone uh, mention something about, and you'll be like, yeah, I think I read that study. And then you're like, oh, no, I think I just heard that on Planet Money. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> then. Um, and, <laughs> go ahead, Jake. Uh, sure. Uh, the podcast I listen to pretty regularly is called Tectonics. Uh, it's a twice-monthly podcast similar to ours, and it's about uh, healthcare and technology. They focus more on um, kind of the industry side of things and the investing side of things and, and how technology relates to healthcare. All right. Well, great. And uh, so, again, thank you, uh, three, for joining me today on uh, Go Live. And this is a podcast that, you know, just is kind of supported by a group of clinical informatics fellows. And we hope that, you know, our listeners enjoy it. And remember that you can uh, tweet us at ACI Fellows. Subscribe to us in iTunes. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, Chase. Cool. See you guys. Go live.